Welcome to the Word with God podcast. It's Carrie here again with Stan, just the two of us this time. Good evening, Carrie. Good evening. Yeah, we, we actually pretty much are just saying our hellos to each other right now. Yeah. Because uh, we both just arrived. And you finished a long day of work, and I finished a long day of work, and and the only thing is, I get to go out and work again tonight. Yeah, what's with that? Why? Why? What do you got to do tonight? Well, I'm I'm plowing snow because one of the other things I do is I have a uh, snow plowing company and a landscaping company, and uh, because someday I may want to retire. And uh, or I may not be able to pastor any longer because I'm just too old. Um, And so that's kind of a backup thing that I have as uh, a retirement project. Do you find that those pastoring and doing the landscaping snow plowing that they complement each other? Because I imagine you get a lot of sermon planning done while you're driving (laughs) or your idea. You have a lot of time to formulate ideas. Well, I listen to I listen to a lot of um preaching and podcasts and I um, I find it's a great time to pray mm-hmm. at night you know two in the morning not much going on um, I get to think about ministry um, it's really for me a quiet time and uh, and I enjoy uh, I enjoy that time out in the truck it's just me and the dog and a cup of coffee uh, although this year I have somebody uh, scraping sidewalks down and so there's other opportunity to mentor and have discussions and so it is uh really i i look at all things kind of how i look at life is you know some people they talk about your ministry and your family life and your work life i i look at the whole thing as one big uh, mass and so what I do in ministry affects my home, it affect my home affects my ministry, my work. If I have a work, you know, like you, you go to a regular job um, in your job hours, you have a lot more job hours than you do ministry hours. Mm-hmm. And uh, but to me, they all impact each other. And so when I went in school, it talked about, you know, how much family time do you need and how much um, I look at the whole of my life, and is it healthy? Is the amount of work versus the amount of um, pleasure and relaxation? And I think that's something our world really mixes up today. We're going to be talking a bit about the world today and kind of secular things. And, and uh, to me, we live in this society that is pleasure, recreationally, um, mad. It's it's all about uh, my time with my thing, and um, I'm not. I don't see a real balance to life between serving others. I mean, outside of the church, serving the community, serving others, recreation, work, and work. I think is devalued. Um. Most of us don't see our work as having value and as having impact, and and maybe part of that is the kind of work that you get, kind of get sucked into. Yeah, I, what you're just saying there made me think of Pinocchio, and at least the Disney movie. I don't know the original story, okay. but it, if you, it's like if you watch Pinocchio and he gets to Pleasure Island and the movie ends, like that's. As if that was like the, you know, the end goal. There's your happily ever after you reach Pleasure Island without seeing, you know, everything else that actually does take place in the story after that and how much that 
destruction that actually brings. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I think I think we, we kind of have this thing of living for the weekend, living when I can let go of all responsibility, do whatever I want. And, and honestly, life in reality has a lot of response. Like the responsibility end is loaded up. I'm, I'm, I'm a father, so I have responsibilities there. I'm a husband. I have responsibilities there. I'm a grandfather now, and I have responsibilities to my grandchildren. And, uh, and so many older people I talk to, I mean, they look forward to this kind of magical 65 or 55, and, and they're going to vacate. They're going to go to Arizona. They're going to go to Florida, and they're going to come and see their grandchildren for a few months in the summer. And I really don't see life like that. I, I look at my, my job as being I'm now the oldest male in my family. In my job as kind of leader of my clan, leader of my family, is the welfare of everybody inside of it. Spiritual welfare, emotional welfare, economic welfare. That's, that is my job as a, as a husband, father, grandpa. And, and how can I do that and go to Arizona for four months of the year or be traveling all over God's creation uh, when when my ministry, and I see this as my main ministry, because this is where they blur together. My main ministry is Working my family. Working inwards, outwards. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you put that. Is that yours, or did you steal that from somebody? I want to claim it. But it's just, it, you know, it's what, there's even that, like, worship song, From the Inside Out. Yeah. And that's more so talking about your inner self, your inner being, and working that out through your actions, but it doesn't only relate just to you and your actions, but radiating, being the light kind mm-hmm. of thing, and allowing that to light up, salt the earth kind yeah. of thing of the people around you and have making their lives better mm-hmm. or in influencing them. And it's just what it made me think of. I got two questions for you, though, that I've thought of from, okay. from what you've been saying. So I'll hopefully remember both of them. The first was when you're talking about work and how much, uh, I guess, balancing it mm-hmm. and balance it. And then in your case, and I guess in my case too, not, not as big of a regard though, balancing work, ministry, family, um, like a time point to a time in your life where you weren't doing that well and what that was mm-hmm. like. Yeah. And just hopefully, just so I can get out there so we remember, um, you're a grandparent, and you've spoken to me a lot before about, you know, the responsibilities of a father, and you sort of got into this now, but like in raising children of character, yeah. and I think you maybe mentioned on the podcast, like, you know, yeah. you don't care about happiness, no. and uh, you do, but not, that's not yeah. the end goal, yeah. right? And, but what's the difference in being a grandfather and your responsibility to your grandchildren versus the father to your children, okay. you okay. know? Um, because So hold on to that one. Yeah, okay. Let me deal with... The first yeah, one yeah. was re, just kind of yeah, recap yeah. it. Okay, yeah. Uh, 
point to a time in your life where you weren't balancing okay, okay. work life ministry all that stuff well and yeah. what that what happened yeah early early 20s uh we were married uh very young i was i was 20 i turned 20 by 10 days and my wife was 19 by i'm going to want to say 3 months and um we and, and we were pregnant by September. Uh, in that time period, I uh, I went to school. Um, I you know that's a bad time to go back to school. I'd say first this was of ministry all, training. Yeah, ministry yeah. training. And I I would say when you are going to go into ministry or or any vocation, try and get your education up front before you have family. But at that time, I was working uh, three jobs. So I would go to school at seven thirty, eight in the morning, be done by noon. My first job was delivering newspapers uh, in a, on a car route. And that's where you have a box of newspapers rolled up in the front seat. You, have, you roll down the passenger window and you drive, you go into country roads, past driveways, and you throw the newspapers down the driveway. Mm-hmm. Uh, like this time of year when they're all ice, they just scoot like you wouldn't believe. So then you try and see how far you can get one. Get them down the driveway. Something to, make for you, the, yeah. something to have a little fun. Right. And so I, I would do that from 2 o'clock-ish till about uh, 4. And then from 4 to 6, I closed a store for a guy. Um, it was an appliance store, and that's where I learned how to repair appliances and vacuum cleaners and learn refrigeration. And uh, and then I went and delivered pizzas at Mother's in uh, St. Thomas, where I was from. And I delivered from as soon as I could get from the store to Mother's. So f- 10 after 6, quarter after 6, I would deliver pizzas to midnight, come home, write papers, uh, wake my wife up. She would type them for me, and I would grab a couple hours sleep and then back at it again the same the next day. And uh, that was totally out of proportion, and I was probably very miserable to live with. Um, it's kind of a blur. And, and so when I finished school, so fast forward five years later, I was absolutely burnt out and useless, yeah. which then I bought a business, and I, I did it all over again. What you're saying there about at least that period of time where you're working, writing, that's it. That to me sounds like the kind of stories that I hear of people saying, this is why I divorced my husband. Yeah. Because this is what life was like. Yeah. This is what I signed up for. See, I, I was very fortunate that I had a, I had a wife who, who knew me, understood me, knew when to push and when not to push. And at this time, we're still getting to know each other. I mean, we back then, it's not like today where you can go and – uh, when we have somebody get married at our church, we do probably 20 sessions of marriage counseling. We do a lot of background work. And, and that's it, not normal in the church either. Isn't it? No. Okay. Like I, I've talked to other pastors, and uh, they'll say maybe three okay. sessions. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, I haven't gone through, obviously, the right. this, but I'm thinking, you know, why, why mess around? Yeah. You know, if you get as much as you can get. Yeah. I, I, I tell the couples that uh, every hour in my office, I figure cuts 500 hours of arguing out. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a good uh, ROI. 
so uh, those were very, and we had little children. So at the same point, we had, uh, from that point, we started, I started with two when I went back to school. And we had four kids by the time we were done. And uh, and then going into business did not help things. So fast forward about 10 years in business, I'm 38, and I realize that my priorities are all upside down and backwards. I am exhausted. I mean, I t- totally, utterly exhausted. And and I I have this aha moment where I go, I do not want the second half of my life to be like the first half. So I was 38 um, and I made a decision that that what I was going to invest in for the rest of my life was not going to look like what had just happened. And that was the impetus and that changed, everything changed. And God was amazing how he brought that all about. And this isn't like you weren't in ministry or full-time ministry at this point. You no. were doing your business. Right. And so what that meant that Volunteering you were, about 20 hours a week at the church. Okay. But st- you were normally like if if you got you've got a business, well yeah. what you did. Yeah. You spent that time pounding the pavement normally in the ho- in the hopes that the rest of your life isn't going to look like that first right. half because you've done the work, you've done the right. work to set everything up, but that isn't what happened because you then transferred out of business. Yes. So, so I imagine there's some silver lining though to that. <laughs> you learn something. Yeah. You, because uh, I mean, you have the bu- businesses now, but they're not they're not a carryover of what that was. No, no, they're totally different. And and starting and running a business in the overflow is different than starting and running a business that you need the money to live off of. Right. And so this is more like a game. It's more fun. And like I said, I tie a lot of ministry to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our businesses save churches about $10,000 a year. And to me, it's another way of giving. Right. Um, So for me, uh, I think that uh, I I was slow to come to the party to realize of, that I had misinvested my life in some things that uh, I am just fortunate for the wife I have and that God really opened my eyes when he did. And the question you started with is, is what came out of all that? Mm. I think every I think many pastors would benefit from having to have made a payroll every week, putting other people first instead of yourself. I mean, many, so there was a number of weeks especially in the wintertime in our businesses, the, our beginning businesses, where I had to pay everybody else and there was nothing left over. I remember those early years of, in our home wondering whether the hydro would be turned off that weekend because we were so close on the bills. And so there are some pressure things. I mean, pastors, one thing you have to do, no matter what's going on, you got to speak Sunday. You have a message to put. You got to put your butt in the chair, no matter what's going on, no matter how you feel, no matter what's. I mean, I remember going out on service calls, and and stopping the truck, leaning out the door, throwing up, and then getting back in the truck because I was sick. But there was nobody else to do the work, and if I didn't do the work, we wouldn't get paid. And if I didn't get paid, the kids wouldn't eat. 
And so there's some lessons there, some sticking to things, learning how to get along with people, angry customers. Uh, you never you never get a phone call in an appliance repair place by happy people. They're all upset because their fridge isn't working, their washer's not working. I mean, what a great precursor to working in the church where people are coming in with messed up lives that aren't working, and and they're they're not real happy in the beginning. It makes me think of a complaint that I've heard from people, and it's not something I've actually experienced, but. You know, and every once in a while when you hear these common complaints, you wonder if someone just made them up and they've gotten carried over and over. Mm -hmm. But it makes sense if it's a real issue is that there are pastors who've just grown up in a bubble and went to do their Bible college or whatever and would possibly be better serving the world going into like theological teaching Mm -hmm. than pastoring. Yeah. Because you, if you're coming and trying to minister to people and with these messed up lives, and you, your kind of answer, the stereotypical thing is like, oh, just trust in God, mm-hmm. something like that, and you, you, you don't have any idea of what goes on in people's lives or how the world actually works, yeah. and I mean, just something as simple as when you're talking about budgeting and paying people, like we. You know, you know what kind of issues can happen, mm-hmm. and if a church doesn't pay their budgets right. correct or right. budget correctly and start paying things from the wrong spots because you just, you know, you didn't right. know when that they don't cover that in Bible college. <laughs> no, they don't. I mean, it's interesting where uh, we have um, a lot of owners of secular businesses will not let their kids come into the business until they've worked somewhere else for, you know, anywhere from five to 10 years. And the kids in high school probably work like all my kids, they called it conscription, Uh, but they would come in and on Saturday mornings and they would clean appliances. We would sell used reconditioned appliances. Uh, And my kids uh, knew what it was to wash out, uh, uh, a, an old freezer to wash out a fridge that smelled kind of, you know, not great. They understood that. They learned good work ethic. But then I sent, you know, they they went out and worked for other people. And I would have continued to do that if we'd have stayed in, in, in the business world. But many of my business mentors did the same thing with their kids. I mean, I have, I have friends that, uh, um, had a multi-million dollar farming business that uh, their sons went out to work for other people for a period of time just to know what was expected in the regular world. And I think the same thing happens, like you were describing in the church, that at times, if you've been raised in the church and you've been sheltered from everything but church life, is you know whether it's Christian school, whether it's... Um, just having a very good protective family, which in its right proportion is a good thing. But when you don't strengthen the person, when they don't have to engage in real world difficulties and, and they go through Bible colleges, they, they come to the church and, and it, they're totally unprepared for what they find. And many times we know nine out of 10 pastors no, do not finish 
And when three bad things happen, kind of that one observation a, a mentor of mine made is that you can handle up to three failures in ministry. And after the three failures, they're selling insurance, they're selling sunrooms, they're, they're you know, doing almost anything else but because they've been burned so badly and they have not been toughened up. I see this in Canadian pastors a lot, less in American pastors. In American pastors, uh, one of my pastor friends told me, it's like a pastor feeds sheep and shoots wolves and has to figure out who's who. And so many Canadian pastors don't know how to shoot wolves. They don't know how to protect the flock. They don't know how to, how to stand up to spiritual bullies in the church or in a denomination and in that protection part, it's, it's kind of pastors resign at the first part of or sign of any resistance, at the first sign of things going south. The automatic thing is, well, I'll leave so I don't create a division. The problem is, is that the wolves get stronger. The wolves become more fierce and the wolves become more adept at stealing sheep and, and eating them alive. And so I, I felt business helped me in that area. And then having some very good role models around me balanced it out. That made me think of, uh, I think it was one of the things I read from Peterson, but it was talking about raising your children to be formidable. Hmm. And I think that's something from what you said before you'd agree with. And it's like, you know, if you shelter them so much from all the mm-hmm. evils of the world, when that inevitably enters their life, yeah. like what's going to stop them from being knocked over and just bowled over by something? Right. And I mean, that's like, how do you create real character hmm. in your kids if they have never faced any sort of difficulty? Yeah. And, Kevin Lehman talks today. He's a, a great uh, child psychologist who does a lot of writing. He talks at reality discipline. Yeah, so I remember my daughter coming, you know, Dad, I didn't get this thing done. I need a note. The teacher wants a note. Uh, if I get a note, I'll get an extension. And I, and I wrote on it, you know, uh, my daughter so-and-so has no reasonable reason not to have had her work done. Hope you have a great day, Dad. Um, that was not the note she was looking for, but why, I mean, she had plenty of time, as much time as anybody else. She had procrastinated. She had not done the work that she needed to do. And so instead of saving her, that, that was a, that was a good fail. It was an easy place to fail. It wasn't, it wasn't damaging to her future, Mm -hmm. uh, in grade six. Um, and, and, and yet it taught her here's what's expected of you and you're not going to get bailed out every time you make a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. The the places that you want to fail kind of thing. You know, luckily most of us, I think, learn that stuff Mm -hmm. in school Mm -hmm. at those times. And thankfully we live Mm -hmm. in a country where Mm -hmm. at that age we're in school and Mm -hmm. not in a workplace where, you know, there's just horrible things that can yeah. happen in those places. You know, yeah. you're basically expendable in some mm-hmm. countries as a child worker. Yeah. And then, you know, you're out on the street or something. We yeah. we get to, yeah, show up 
late with an assignment. Yeah. We, we had paid chores. We had family chores. Um, you know, and sometimes there, uh, there would be chores given at the beginning of a day. You've got to 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock tonight to do this chores. 7 o'clock tonight, and this is when the kids were a little bit older. At 7 o'clock at night, we would, as everybody got their chores done, and, it, it, and if you had your chores done, we went, at, we had this place called Shaw's Ice Cream Store. It was amazing. It had like better than Baskin Robbins or Marble Slab. It was just, it was just awesome. They had this thing called the Elegant Banana Split, had probably <laughs> like a half a gallon of ice cream and bananas and every. I mean, it was just amazing. But we'd say, okay, those who have their chores done, we're going to Shaw's Ice Cream. Those who don't have their chores done, are staying and finishing their chores. Yeah, um, that's a that's a simple fail, but it does make an impression when you're 14 or when you're 13. Well, you got the same thing with students now, where you'll say something like, "Okay, well, this is due at the end of the period. Mm-hmm. If it's not, if you're not finished, then you're going to stay in at recess mm-hmm. because the important thing is the work gets done." And you're going to keep staying in something like that until the work is done. And, you know, it shouldn't take too many missed recesses before you realize, you know, I've got 30 minutes of this class that I can get and I can get the work done in 10. Mm -hmm. Why don't I get it done now instead of wasting all this? And like, I don't know, we're not that we change that much as adults, really, but. There's just like the little things my parents used to make me sit at the kitchen kitchen table or the dinner table until I finished what was on my plate. Right. And I'd sit there for, I, I'm guessing at times an hour because I didn't want to finish what was on my plate. Mm-hmm. And eventually I'd finish what was on my plate. And it's like, what was the point of that? Right. Like <laughs> I, got, I gained nothing. Right. I just yeah. wasted my yeah. time. Yeah. So if it was liver, I would, I would, I would understand it. <laughs> but anything else? Well, that's the thing. Torsten, my friend, he, he like, any, I think any food he's fine with except liver. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've heard it said that what you don't learn from your parents at home, God moves it to the next level of learning it from your teachers and peers at school. What you don't learn from your peers and teachers in in school, you learn from your employer and other employees that you work with. And what you don't learn there, your wife or your husband becomes the next teacher. What you don't learn from your wife and your husband then moves to be taught to you by your children. And I would presume, because I'm at this stage now, what you haven't learned from your children will eventually come up again at your grandchildren's level. So why not, just like you said at school, why not get it early? Yeah. But most parents are so willy-nilly and and really, what I would say are spineless and ba- have no backbone to stand up to their children in order to help their children. They, it, another friend of mine calls this cruel kindness. Mm-hmm. Parents think they're being kind, but they're setting their kids up for failure. And, and it's a way of cruelty to them because they expect the world to operate like that. I mean, I know, I know parents who actually do 
their kids' homework so that their kids get a good mark. And I've seen that go from public school to high school, and I've even heard of uh, in, in some colleges where, where parents are helping their kids plan their calendar so they can get things. I'm thinking, like, if you haven't learned by university how to plan a calendar, take your syllabus, plan your calendar, and get your work done, what are you going to do on the job site? Is mom going to come along with you and that project that you need to get done and help you organize it? Like, what on earth are we doing? Uh, you kind of segued a bit there into the grandparent question. You started with it, so that was... What is the difference, really? Because people, yeah. like, the normal thing we talk about is, yeah. oh, parents raise the child, grandparents spoil the child type yeah. thing. Yeah. But that's just... That's hokum. Yeah. Okay. Um, my first and foremost job as a grandparent is to support and back up my children. Okay. So my daughter says to her young one... Um, go pick up your toys and I'm there and dad isn't and and he starts to give her some lip I'll just say yeah Tyler you're saying that to your mom and he'll uh, and 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 so I'm backing her up what she is saying what she's doing or I have older grandchildren now around 13 and they're going well you know mom and dad are doing this and I don't think well my very first thing is to back up what the, her parents are doing right mm-hmm. to point out what what she has or what he has, you know, did you eat last night? Was your bed warm? How about the car? Did it take you where you wanted to go today? <laughs> and, and so I, I, first of all, I back up the parents. Secondly is I give time that parents don't have because they are so busy with, with working and providing an income and managing kids that um, we've always looked at our home as a place of refuge mm-hmm. for my ch- for my grandchildren. There's a strange thing that I've seen a few times, just and sometimes in media, but I think it's true mm-hmm. that grandparents in general g- g- raised their children in a more strict way yeah. than their children are now raising these kids. Right. Yet the grandchildren feel more comfortable sometimes sharing some things with that grandparent than with right. their parents. Right. And, you know, I, I don't know what that, how that happens. And we have more time to listen. Yeah. And to build a one-on-one relationship that, I mean, we had four kids and um, I worked, Lori stayed home till our youngest was in school and then went back to work. And um, and so, I mean, we listened and we talked and we tucked them in at night and we prayed with them. But just to sit and listen, uh, as a grandparent, um, I do probably 5% of the talking. Mm-hmm. And I learned that from my father because I would watch him with my daughter and he would go, and and even at, you know, 13, 14, 15, my, my father would take my daughter out for a coffee at Tim Hortons. And um, and she would just prattle on. I mean, she, she could talk. And and he, my dad was not a talker. Yeah. And he would just go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he would ask some good questions. 
and um, and she would come home and tell me, oh, I was talking to Grandpa, and I think we should I should do this, and I think and I'm going like I told you that, <laughs> I told you that like like a week ago. I I don't remember that. It's one of those things they come home like, oh, great talk, Grandpa, and you're sitting there wondering what you said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you mean talking? Yeah. You did all the talking. Yeah. So I I see that as I I see more of a more of a guide, a place of wisdom. Uh, there's a guy that wrote a book that talked about five stages of manhood. And the final stage is sage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time you get to sage, you've fought a lot of battles, fought a lot of wars. There's there's different, he talked about the different kinds of masculinity that there are. There's just, there's being a boy. Like boys shove things in their pockets. Boys collect stuff. Mm-hmm. Boys are interested what the inside of a worm looks like. Yep. Um, there, you know, there's just lots of things that, that he calls that kind of generic maleness. Then there's the warrior part. There's the, I mean, it may not be with with swords and, and bow and arrow, but athletics, sports of any kind. Um, that warrior stage can go into the work world as well, where you're fighting battles and defeating dragons and, and you know, slaying the the evil whatever. And... Uh, and then uh, he talks about the sexual male and how, as men, there's that drive in your life of achieving and a relationship and building a relationship. Then there's a male stage where, where it's where have I been and what have I done? You grow past that. The final stage is sage, where the wisdom you've gathered on the journey. And the interesting thing is a man can get stuck in any one of those stages. Mm-hmm. You, you've known 60-year-old men that act like 22-year-old boys around girls. I yeah. mean, they're just, they, they never get past that. Or they're always a warrior. They're always fighting about something. I've met some men that are 70, and, and they want to draw the sword over, over everything. Life should teach you when to draw the sword and when not to draw the sword. Life should teach you when I find that woman in my life who is who I'm going to make a life with, the quest for that is over and it's done. The been there, done that, and you know the the T-shirt. I've been, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody wears a T-shirt. Like I've been to Aruba, I've been to Cuba, I've been to. It there's a point when it's like it's not what I do; it's who I am. It's my character. It's the kind of man that I am. It's it's the where I stand with God, where I stand in my community, where I stand at church, as as a man of integrity who will enter in and. And, and be something more than just the guy who shows up. And that, when that whole process is complete, that is where the sage piece comes in because you've got all the pieces, you've lived all those parts of life, and now hopefully, although I've met some older men who have, it just never seems to come together for them, but hopefully by that, God has rubbed the rough edges off and created in you the character, the tenacity, uh, that formability word. I like that. I'm not sure I, say, I even got it out right. <laughs> formability. Um, but, but Formidability. Formidability. That's what God is trying to produce in us is this well-rounded man of God, woman of God, who now 
can enter into these grandchildren's lives and share life. I mean, I learned my dad was awesome. My mom was awesome. I learned far more from my grandfather and my grandmother than I did from them. And no fault to my parents and not that they didn't do a good job. They did a great job. But my grandparents had the wisdom and something about younger boys in particular. I'm not, I've never been a girl, so I can't tell you what that's about. <laughs> but as a young man, my grandfather and grandmother's words held weight. It's just something there that, that made me listen. So that's something like the sage thing that you're talking about that mm-hmm. like most cultures got that or they get or they did get that. Right. Because the, you know, the village elder right. archetype, like there was someone who'd lived life that everyone else answered to, basically. Right. And I don't know if it's always been this way, but there's always, uh, for me, mm-hmm. been this kind of distrust or anger at older generations and i remember in high school like the thought going around was like you know once we get into power then everything in the world will get sorted out and now you're like i mean just hear constant hate at baby boomers now all the time and Mm -hmm. i don't get it like it do i just don't understand how people can hold such I guess bigoted yeah. views to yeah. of older generations just because yeah. they I mean they've lived life yeah. longer. It doesn't mean that they're right on everything obviously, yeah. but they often in general have come to their conclusions based on what life has taught them yeah. on the road. And I mean I bet you can look I know myself I can look at the things I thought when I was younger and made that made perfect to me logical sense and think I was foolish. Yeah. We, we have stopped honoring those who have gone before us. And and that those seeds were sown uh, many years ago in our society, in our culture. And if you look at, it's interesting. I once heard it said that what you laugh at as a teenager, uh, you will um, not value as an adult or you'll buy into it. And so we see we see parents being made fun of. I saw it first in TV back in the 70s, where always the children were the smart ones in the family. It's almost like the family was run by the children, and any kind of um, reason or... or um, sense common sense was held by the children and not by the adults well yeah it's hard like i can't think i've been thinking ever since you got into that little bit about media i was trying to think of a formidable father figure in a sitcom yeah and i'm right now i can't i can think of homer simpson and obviously not and characters like i mean we've learned different since but certainly bill cosby Mm, yeah there was a dad who was intelligent, smart, hardworking, loved his family, cared, you know, what he was in real life is one thing, but and 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 who knows the whole story, but but what we see on TV was was parents who loved each other, put their children first, 
in some ways and yet held them accountable. Mm-hmm. And and we, you know, that's probably the last place um, that we saw that. And so we've raised a generation to think that adults are just wacko, that um, the honor for grandparents, of course, but what's happened? Fathers have left the home. Grandparents have wandered off to, to Las Vegas and Arizona and Florida. Um, people are, are not, as our generation has forfeited almost the right to be honored and to be heard. In, in a vast majority. And, and so now um, there's no sane voice speaking into the life of our kids. It's interesting. I've, I've watched it. About 35 is when your ch- adult children begin to understand you hmm. and begin to appreciate what you've done and how you've, you've trained them. Um, your grandchildren will catch on a little faster. Um, but in, in some senses, it's, uh, you're right. What I thought at 20 was so crazy. Yeah. Um, and I was probably closer at 12 to thinking correctly yeah. than I was at 20. And, and again, it wasn't to my mid-30s that I had really started to put it together. Yeah, I remember as a kid, high school probably because that's when we first learned about thinking if they could get this communism thing down pat it would probably be the best thing going (laughs) and like which is insane to me now but i don't know the way they taught it to us or something as a kid it somehow made sense but i mean we we, i remember in grade four four five grade five it was that's when we first you know you have the scenario where you've got a rowboat and it holds nine people, but 10 people and you've got 11 people there and two are hanging on the outside. And before long, the whole boat's going to go down. So who do you kick off the boat and, and, and allow to die? Like it, what's the, they're teaching you like a utilitarian philosophy. Yeah. And in our children, um, it's interesting how the Bible says in the last days that parents, you know, Parents will give up children. Children will give up parents in these desperate times that are predicted to come and how parents don't, won't love their kids. And so we've got a whole generation of parents now, a number, actually maybe probably two generations of parents who are more self-centered, who are more set on back to where we started this, leisure, pleasure, than they are at being able to give up the short-term for the long-term goal. And it's, it's got to be harder now with the smartphones and all that mm-hmm. stuff, right? Where you, at one point in time, just, they used people probably complain about the TV, sitting yeah. in front of the TV. But now you can be sitting in front of the TV with your kid yeah. and with another TV in your yeah. hand doing yeah. something. <laughs> like you're moving steps and steps yeah. away. My favorite meal of the day is breakfast. One of the reasons it's my favorite meal is you can get a good breakfast for about $5.40. Yeah. And, um, but I love going out to breakfast and, um, and just, I mean, Lori and I, we talk about all kinds of stuff and, and we, um, and we, uh, have some good conversations around breakfast. But as you look around the room, especially Saturday mornings, you see moms and dads and kids and everybody's on their smartphone. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
you, you kind of hear that in a newspaper or you hear that in a podcast, but really go out and look. And, and I would think there was about 150 people in the room that I was at two weeks ago. And and there was only one per. There's two people who were actually talking. What was it looked like a grandparent, a grandma, and a grandson. So grandma was probably 80ish. Grandson was maybe 27, 28 in there, and they were having an eye-to-eye conversation over their meal, laughing, talking, engaging. Not a single other couple or single family unit in that restaurant were taught they were all looking at at cell phones newspapers there's a few of those dinosaurs around yeah what's a newspaper (laughs) but they weren't engaging i mean if you can't and then if you're not engaging with people how are you engaging with god that that's and it's a weird issue too because it's one that pretty much everyone seems to recognize but we're not doing anything about it no because yeah you're you hear about it all the time about how much screen time they call it Mm -hmm. people are having Mm -hmm. but you know the most imagine the disciples if they'd (laughs) had smartphones and jesus is trying to have these conversations around the the campfire at night and and they're you know like peter can you just turn that that your phone over and leave it down so (laughs) that we can you know finish this conversation like i can't even They'd forget that they were invited to the Last Supper or something. Yeah. They didn't hear it. <laughs> it, it you know, I tell you, it is, it is amazing how much of the Scripture moves around relationships with other people. Yeah. And primarily relationship with God. All other relationships flow out of that relationship that you have with the Father and with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if that relationship's not strong, if that relationship, if you have not honed those skills in, relation, in the relationship with God, how are you going to have those skills in relationship with your kids and your grandkids and your spouse? And, and in this world where it becomes so self-centered and so technology-centered, like the picture that the Bible paints is not that picture. Yeah. So the question I had asked you before we started to think about mm-hmm. was, what do you think on a secular level the biggest problem facing our society is? And what I mean by that is not not bringing in the sort of God thing of like, you know, people uh, aren't going to church, they're earth sign, they're not reading their Bible, stuff like that. But just something that, you know, yeah. that the newspapers are reporting on. Yeah. You're talking to a guy that doesn't read newspapers or listen <laughs> to the news much. Yeah. But let, let me let me make an observation. Yes. Is one, a problem that we have is the inability to have relationships, isolation, and aloneness. Look at the soar in suicide rates. Yeah. Look at... The number of people who are on medications for depression, um, isolation is bad for people. Whether whether or not you're a follower of Jesus or not, the last thing you need in your life is isolation. And we live in a world 
that is focused so much on myself that isolation is the outcome of all of that focus. So then the follow-up question is, what do you think God says about that? Or what can we, at least as a church, as ministers, do to help solve this problem? It's, it's interesting that in the beginning when sin entered the world, well, the first thing they began to do is they began to blame shift. And then they, they began to move away from each other in closeness. Sin has a way, and the fallen nature has a way of making us think that isolation and being alone in the dark is preferable to the pain of revelation, illumination, and being known. And, and so I think in our society... There's this under this this underpinning of if I am alone, I will not be hurt. I have enough people come into my office telling me of the horrible, terrible things done to them by parents, by relatives, by friends, by their peer group. Not a week goes by that I do not hear of some tale where a person is wounded and cut to the quick and to the deep. In the church is to be the mirror and the picture of what life is to be like inside of relationship with God. The church and its relationship one to another, that we are part of a body, that we need each other, that we are there for each other, that we each have gifts that are given to to help the next person beside us, and they have gifts to help me. The church is to model that idea of... of, of um, Integrity and transparency. Here is who I am. Warts, bumps, lumps, sin, shortcomings, and everything. And I know that even though these things are exposed, I am loved anyway, as God loves me in spite of all those things and has provided for forgiveness, has provided for redemption, has provided for for a, a new creation act in my life through Jesus. And the church is the place, it's the garden. Yes, it has weeds. Yes, it it, it is not it is way short of being perfect because you are there and I'm there. But it is the place to work that out. It's the safe place. We talked about a safe place to fail when you're a kid. Yeah. The safe place in life is in a God-fearing, biblically-led, biblically-informed church. And you had to clarify that. Yes, I had to clarify yeah, that. Yeah, because if you said just a church, you'd have a whole bunch of people thinking, well, I was in a church and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, you will anyway. Yeah, because that that's part of the now, but not yet. It's I love how how Steve Brown puts it: the dragon is dead, but the tail is still swishing. Mm-hmm. And so the death in throws. the right in the church, and, and this is the thing that I, I mean, I hear this all the time, and I really I, I I'm not sure what to do. You know, I was in the church, and there was so and so, and they did this, and this person in the church, they were, you know, they committed adultery, and this person in the well, the church is. What, you know, what was Jesus' parables of the sheep and the goats? 
Yeah. What was the Jesus parable about the wheat and the tares? It all grows up together. It's all in the church. There are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ. There are fallen followers of Jesus Christ. There are wolves and there are tire kickers. Parable of the soil. Yeah. The soil, the point of the parable of the soil is that it produced what, what soil, what seed and what soil produce fruit? Fruit's the, the picture in the parable. So you have, you have seed that falls on hard ground and, and, and nothing happens to it. You have seed that falls by the wayside. It grows up a little bit and, and, uh, and the sun comes out and it scorches. Only one soil produced fruit. But the and then there was the third that grows for a while and get, that eventually gets choked out. Right, and that's could be possibly that's, where a bunch of those problems. That's occurred. all going on in the church. Yeah, and so and so yes, you, you, what you have to look for are those who have fully committed their lives to Jesus. They're not going to be perfect, but you know what? They're going to have a heart for repentance. They're going to have a heart to say they're sorry. They're going to have a heart for restitution. They're going to have a heart to to turn their back on themselves and to turn their energies and times towards you. Um, anyway, I, I, just, I just think that the church has so much to offer in this day. Some pastors get, I mean, they're a real funk about the day and the time that we live in. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. We are so getting so close to New Testament world here where the church had no money and no power and no prestige. And and the church could be what God called them to be, which is salt and light and in 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 this dark and tasteless world. Yeah, like throw off all the sort of things of culture that we've put into the church mm-hmm. and just go back to basics. I, I mean, there's, I love I love the church, mm-hmm. and I love, I mean, I love worshiping with a live band. I love worshiping to songs that are meaningful and fresh and new, and I love, I love that our church has different lighting, and, and there's quieter times where the lighting is down, where I can reflect and think. It's, it's all helpful. It's all nice. It's all useful, but it's not all needed. If tomorrow we are we are in your shed, ten of us worshiping Jesus because we're going to be shot if we're caught, we don't need. I mean, the lights are soon forgotten, and the sound is soon forgotten, and the video projection is soon forgotten, because we are there not to be catered to, not to be, not to consume a product, but we are there to worship. And come to the God who loved us and made us and to seek life from him because life is so fragile and uncertain in the day. I think that's a great place to end it. <laughs> okay. Well, we've done about an hour, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me just pray and uh, before, we, before we end. Father, I thank you so much. You know, it seems like we've kind of walked a long way around the barn today and a lot of topics and times it did seem that we were on a topic that was really about you or the church and yet every word you were woven in 
and your hand is woven in. I thank you, Father, for those who are listening, for those that we get to share a little bit of life with in our thoughts and our experiences. And uh, so many of them would add to our lives if we could have a one-on-one conversation. So take these things. Minister to our hearts. Teach us what you would have us to learn. Help us to be committed to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And don't end your day without a word with God.